Welcome to episode 288 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. If it feels like you've been banging your head against a brick wall trying to sell a product or service, it's time to try something new. Stop guessing at what people want to buy from you. Create exactly what your prospects know they need and help them realize there is an even bigger problem that is getting in their way of success. Don't wait another six months to finally get traction or to finally accept your idea was a dud. Taking action now will help you get the clarity you need to create the products and services people actually want to buy from you. Ultimately, that's what my idea to offer workshop is all about, taking action. It's a day set aside to work on your business, not just in your business. Stay tuned after today's interview to find out how this is an opportunity to dive deeper into learning a repeatable process that will help you build an audience for every new product and service you dream up before spending money, time, and effort trying to sell it. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest was forced to figure out how she fits in the world. She started her second career as a means of survival. Fighting discrimination, harassment, and homelessness, she found employment as a part-time associate, then rose to National VP of Diversity and Inclusion in less than five years at PNC Bank. She captured this process of career development in her new award-winning book and online course called Empowering Differences. She's worked tirelessly to promote awareness and acceptance of gender identity and expression. She serves on the Corporate Advisory Council for the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce and is the immediate past chair for NGLCC's Global TGX Initiative. In 2019, she was voted on the National Board of Directors for GLAAD. She speaks locally and nationally about her transition, workplace equality, leadership, change management, and empowerment. She's also been interviewed in several publications and media outlets, including Forbes, Bloomberg Business Week, The Business Journal, ABC, and CBS. Please join me in welcoming Ashley T. Brundage. Yay! I'm so excited to be here and join you all, and let's just uh, bring it. <laughs> awesome. Ashley, loving your enthusiasm. Thanks for joining us to your place in Tampa, Florida. So, you know, we were talking a little bit a moment ago about how this is a show about building strong networks, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? <laughs> well, I, well, first, I define leadership as someone who drives empowerment for people. And that means that they understand the app of empowerment, which is authority, power connected to people. And that app, in essence, should be part of their leadership model that they use each and every day. And I uncovered this app of empowerment after learning how to be a leader just by accident and just showing up and being the person who was physically there in a, my first career, working 12 years in the restaurant industry, leading a team of 50 people. I was kind of the accidental manager because they needed someone who was reliable that was going to be there. Um, and then I started to shape my leadership skills as I went through the world and then uncovered that I needed to stop living a double life, which also led to transitioning, 
But then for me, the real leadership model that I uncovered was when I started facing discrimination and harassment to go with my side of homelessness. And I realized that there was a lot more optical views to how leaders could navigate this world and why empowerment was so important into framing for people. All people want empowerment and all people have differences. So that's why I started to research that as a leadership model to help people drive change. I feel like you haven't thought very much about leadership at all. It's clearly off the cuff. You've just made that all up. Hey, what does app stand for again? I would love you to repeat that. Yeah. So the app, it moves every single moment of every day. It doesn't require you to have internet access to download. Okay. It's authority, power, and people. So everything that you do in the entire world combines those things. And it's an opportunity to drive empowerment for people. Um, and then remember that there are subsets. So well, I dissected them in my research, so you don't have to. <laughs> and authority is where the emotional component is. It's where confidence lives. It's where representation lives. It's where we see ourselves being the boss of our own lives. That's where recruiting, retention, uh, leadership development program, career progression, all of those things live in that authority bucket. And then in the power bucket is always going to be some sort of measured, tracked resource. It's a number. It's definitely a business element. It's contracts win. It's RFP. It's RFQ. It's money. It's all monetary instruments that drive change for people. But it's also the most powerful thing that is a power element, which is, of course, time. Because time is of such a pressured resource on this planet. You only have so much of it. And it can always be measured by minutes, hours, seconds, days, weeks, years. All of that is a measured resource that controls power for people. So, understanding empowerment really starts in connecting with the app of empowerment. I love it. I love it. So I want to go back a little bit to your story, though. You were telling uh, about how you were working in restaurants. I, too, came up working in restaurants, like at every kind of job. I feel like people should, should either pack bags at a grocery store at the very least or get some experience waiting tables or bartending or, or being a host hostess at a busy restaurant. Because there's some serious people skills and organizational skills and, you know, working on a team and organized chaos. And, you know, when I got into events, I organized fundraising events for GLAD, the single A GLAD. I called your GLAD, GLAD. So, <laughs> but, so you, when I, in, in the introduction, you were talking about GLAAD, but, um, but yeah, I, when I hired people to intern for me, the people who had the experience of working in restaurants often really understood like the workflow. Um, so I understand how you can kind of get a lot of experience there. I'm assuming that's probably in your twenties. That's not, you know, I'm curious if you roll back. What was, what were you like even younger than that? Like, were you the kid like always stepping up, finding yourself in a, in a leadership role? Or were you kind of watching the room? Like, um, what, what kind of, how did you show up or not show up back then? Yeah, I hid. I hid so hard. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't hiding before uh, puberty. Really, for me, puberty was kind of that moment uh, because it, being trans, it's like, oh, 
okay, everything's great when you're a youth, as long as you're being, you know, able to do what you want to do. And I was free to kind of move about the world. Um, my, uh, you know, every once in a while I would get the don't stand that way or don't walk like that or don't talk like that. But, you know, this was the nineties in Florida. So, um, as a teenager, uh, but then puberty really changed it for me and it, and it caused a, a deep depression, uh, around the changes that I started to experience. Um, and so I started just hiding, I started hiding my authenticity. I started hiding my leadership skills. I started hiding and I just kind of did. And, uh, I was a DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion denier in some ways. Like I wouldn't want to show up to the women's event because I was afraid that someone was going to spot my female tendencies. Um, I was just so afraid of the world. I didn't allow myself to thrive. And did you go off to a university or college or did you go right into working? I went right into working. I, I started working in the restaurant business because I felt that that was the best way to kind of hide mm-hmm. was to really just focus. And plus I had a traumatic event with a family member. And then that forced me to really hide in the closet from that moment. Um, and I was living on my own at 17, paying for my own apartment. And then my grades started to suffer. And I was so triggered at being in school um, because Ashley was my middle name at birth. So whenever there was a first day or a substitute teacher, I would get ridiculed to the 10th degree because they would say my whole name. And then they would say, Ashley, and everyone would start calling me Ashley. And I'm like, oh my God, that's who I really identify with. So it was so hard to function in school that I was like, I am not going to go to college because this is just going to be so much hard every single day. And I'm going to be paying for this kind of hardness. I don't need to put myself through that. Uh, so I hit as much as I could. <laughs> yeah. What, what kind of role did you seek out in a restaurant? Um, so I started in the restaurant industry as, as a part-time um, a server. Um, and I think I was making like four bucks an hour. <laughs> right. Plus tips. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that was a non-tip. Oh, that was hour. a non. Oh, geez. I, I started in a restaurant. I actually started at a friendlies in a kitchen because I was afraid to do the, to do serve, like to go to the table. Like I, I didn't, I couldn't I understand how it worked. Quick service, uh, fast, casual restaurant. Yeah. And, but eventually I, I found my way out of the kitchen and turns out I was really good. i ended up really enjoying, you know, working I loved tables. working in the kitchen though. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really a place to hide. Like you just got yeah. your four people and you try not to get burned. I mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Hot pan, hot pan coming through. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so that I, I imagine like that became like a home for you. You sounds like you were there for quite a while. Yeah. I worked in the industry there for 12 years and I started there as an entry level. I learned all the positions and then I became a man- shift manager, hourly shift manager. And then, and then I was a corporate manager and then I got my own store at 20 and, um, and which was quite a rise in that. And, but a lot of that was tied to my ability to be present and committed and my ability to want to run away from my identity and bury myself in just doing work. Okay. There's something really fascinating to unpack here. So at 17, you're basically on your own, just trying to figure out how to like pay for what you need just to survive. But within a few years, because of your own focused effort, which might've been a coping mechanism, um, but one which people probably, you know, if you had gone into drugs and alcohol for three years, you wouldn't have achieved 
that. And, you know, so you, you poured, you poured your effort in to a, a socially approved denial mechanism. Um, and now here you are at 20 with all this responsibility, but no life experience. I mean, every 20 year old thinks they need to know nothing else right. they know everything. But did you feel like you were actually equipped to do, did you feel like you had what you needed in that moment? It seems like a daunting, I mean, even aside all the personal stuff you were dealing with, did you like, what was that like at 20 to have a restaurant that you were running? I mean, I was like, just kind of picking in things that I had watched. So like growing up, I went on the salvage yard trips with my mom who was a single mom and I watched her move in a male dominated field. And literally I would be in that truck with her as she would go to the salvage yard and she would get the best deal and I would watch her deal make. And then I would watch um, other people early in my career working in the restaurant. I, I really studied people. It was kind of like, that's how I, I would emulate other leaders and what they would do. And I remember my first manager, Lee Robertson, uh, and he was a Southern draw, <laughs> Southern gentleman. Right. And, uh, you know, he had that thick accent, Southern style, United States, Southern style accent. Um, and he was so funny. He was like, listen, you're either, uh, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, it's unacceptable. And I was like, oh, that's a really good leadership principle. And I like committed that to memory, right? So, Wow, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. fortunately, you had probably some good examples around you. I'm sure you also noticed behaviors that you didn't want to exemplify and learned that way. It sounds like observation skills is, is high for you. Yeah. Um, and then, and then because you were a chameleon, you were, you were act, you were always acting. So like yeah. you get to choose the role felt better than like the role being chosen for you. So you were like picking how to show up in this way. I mean, this is, that's, we could end the interview right here. And I'd be like, wow, this is a really impressive story <laughs> and you're 20. You know what I mean? Like, that's pretty amazing. Somewhere along the line, did you figure out that you wanted to do something beyond working in restaurants? Like you know, here you are late twenties. Like when did you start to think there's something beyond that? Cause I can imagine you could, you just made a career. Um, well, I really wanted to keep growing my career, but, um, and there were some opportunities, but I started letting my work slip. And, and that was kind of what led to me actually getting fired in the restaurant industry. Um, I wasn't performing at my clip and, uh, I was just because I was battling everything that I was hiding and uh, came to a culmination moment where I could not function anymore. Um, and then that's what kind of led to my demise in the restaurant industry. <laughs> but the, the, your rebirth in other ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what year, what year is that? Like just that was time 08. Of... Yeah. So that's 2000. Okay. Yeah. 2008. And then to go with all of that, losing my job, I also started getting hit with the 2008 economic housing right. crisis. Right. And, and that's when my house got taken from me. And then we were kind of squatting and kind of moving from place to place to try to figure out where we were going to live. And, and the we in the story, who's who was supporting you? Um, you so supporting? I was actually at that point, I was um, still married uh, to my um, my partner at the time. And it was, um, and you know, so we had kids, um, um, 
uh, Bryson Blake. And honestly, really literally having kids is what helped me get through all of the every day being my new worst day. It was like they were true suicide prevention, like for real. Um, and then, you know, obviously I reached that breaking point. So, um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So now, so in your twenties, you like blossomed by societal standards, right? By societal standards, you were doing amazing things in your business, in a workforce, you were achieving great, uh, levels of success as far as like managerial responsibilities and all of that very young age, you're a superstar, you know, everyone wants to like hook themselves onto your rising fame. You're, you get married, you have two kids, the white picket fa- I mean, like you really kind of live in the dream except yeah. that for you, it's not right. Like it's, it's right. the everyday nightmare of being discovered, found out being a fraud, probably not just on a personal level, but like, what did you know about everything you were trying to do in, in the world leadership and all that you were just piecing it together based on one person's motto after another, like, Oh yeah, it was a thing. The other person said, Oh, that's my thing now. Um, and so it's, it's a house of cards that you've built. And then on top of that, there's this international global economic crisis that puts like the housing market. Right. Okay. So, wow, here you are. So what are you, are you even 30 at this point? Not yet. <laughs> you're not even 30. I mean, like all of this. Okay. So 20, you're like, you know, everyone wants to have your life. <laughs> and in late twenties, no, you're not even sure if you want to have it. Like, but right. your kids keep you sane and like, or at least alive, I guess your kids keep you alive because you have to care for them. Um, yeah. And they must be pretty young at that point. Yeah. So when I finally came out to them, because there was a bit of a, you know, in and out half, half in half out phase, where yeah. it's like testing the waters, the toe dip, <laughs> because finding employment was so difficult. But uh, that was when I finally came out to them, they were five and three. Wow. And I told them that I was trying, and I don't think I told them in that way, but I mean, we just said, you know, I got them this uh, book called My Princess Boy. And, um, and then they read that one and they were like, oh, okay. And well, my oldest read it. My youngest one was like, oh, I don't give a, you know what? Uh, I'm just glad that you're, you're going to be here still with us. Um, yeah. but my oldest was like, oh, well, someone's my friend. I want a princess dress. Then there's be my friend. Yeah. I know the book. I have a four and six year old. Uh, okay. And that's, that's in their rotation of books that they like to read. Um, it's a really, it's a great option. We'll put a link in the show notes to, to my princess boy. I think yeah. there's, there's a few, few other books that I would think of, but um, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I'm out in the world and as a, as a trans guy. And yet, you know, people, I've occasionally people will be like, well, when did you come out to your kids or how are you going to come out to your kids? I'm like, I've just lived with them. Like, <laughs> Like, I guess there's no, like, I've been me in this form since way before they were born. Um, you know, so it's just about how we talk about things Like we, you know, we are a queer family. We celebrate pride as a national holiday. Like, um, the books that are on their, on their, you know, bookshelf. Um, yeah, I was just actually reading about, um, some books. I, I just came across another like women's empowerment series and I'm like, Oh, another, like more books, the bookshelf, like, um, you know, I'm raising two kids that will get really exposed to like a wide variety of messages, but they're also getting so much stuff at school. Like my four-year-old's like, and he loves pink and purple, but he then will tell me about certain toys are for girls. And I'm like, but you like that 
So that's a, that's a if that's a Zach approved game, then any kid can play with it. Like why you know, and it's just like pushback. So yeah. I can see the messaging for your kids who are just at that age where like they're starting to believe these sort of rigid stereotype you know ideas of gender, and now you're like blowing. Yeah, like, it wasn't like you introduced them for years. It was like boom. But kids are so yeah. adaptable and resilient. It's amazing. So. Yeah. I, I before you and I started talking on air, you mentioned that you joined the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce in 2012. Was it? Yeah, I, yeah. I showed up as a member uh, in 2012. The, yeah. So tell me what happened. I'm curious. So now we're we're in 2008. This four years later. What a difficult four years, I imagine, just given just the economic stuff alone and the having to find a job yeah. and relationships up difficult. Um, how did you? choose a path forward? Like what was the work you were even looking to get after being in restaurants? I was just trying to find a place where I could be me. I mean, because I noticed that people were only hiring entry-level positions. And if I was going to take an entry-level position, then I was only going to be living one life. Um, I was not going to be living a life. <laughs> I mean, for, you're not paying me enough to stay. For eight bucks an hour. I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to be doing that. Um, and uh, so I just was looking for anything and I got told no 40 times. I got told no in some of the crappiest ways um, from we would never hire anyone like you. You have the wrong address. Please leave. I got the cops called on me. I got trespassed from a job interview. And that's when I was like, wow, you know what? I'm going to need to come over this whole hill that I'm about to encounter with. I need lots of empowerment. And that's when I started coming up with my four-step empowerment process to create change. And I used steps one and two to get a job, which is to know yourself and know others. And know yourself, of course, encompasses lots of self-assessments. Uh, uh, so I built an empowerment assessment and a differences assessment that's published on my site. And I, I have them for free for anyone in the world to access because access is a great way to create empowerment for another person. So we can include that in the show notes. Uh, to links to those assessments. And then the knowing others is about learning about all the differences that we hold as humans on this planet. So I researched the 10 most common differences that we have as humans. And what I found was that there was empowerment data points around the power portion of empowerment that I could communicate during job interviews and during career progression interviews that were going to change someone's position point or unconscious bias that they might have about a difference that someone holds onto. If you share an economic statistic, like the fact that there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States, or the fact that there's 5.7% of the population in the UK is LGBTQ. If you share data that can tell people that there's a number associated with a difference or a community, then you're talking about, right, the economic buying power of the LGBT business community in the United States alone is estimated at $1.7 trillion, right? So now you're reframing the narrative. So I use steps one and two to get a job at PNC Bank as a part-time bank teller. Wow. Wow. What? Okay. Did you have those skills of research? I mean, obviously you had observation skills, but like that's different than than research skills. Did you know going in that 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 was a skill set you had, or does that one uh, that you sort of acquired along the way? I definitely acquired it, but I mean, I knew that I was a sponge and kind of engaging with people, and then I kind of combined that people engagement with the internet 
right? And the ability to find out anything that you want to find out that could be could potentially be fact-based. Wow, now you're opening up a whole nother door, right? So when I did this research, my book has 40 citations of factual data points to help people drive empowerment for others. Amazing. And um, back in 2008, 2009, was PNC uh, working on their DEI initiative? And did that include LGBT? Um, so I didn't get that job until 20, late 2010, early 2011. Um, and they did launch a DNI program in 2010. It Got was it. one of the reasons that I was trying to try to, I was trying to target companies or organizations that had a program so that that way that could be a goal that I shoot for to get to work in that program. That was 100% my goal when I started working there. Got it. Wow. Okay. So that that's a lot of forward thinking for a career <laughs> strategy for a person who's basically spent three years unemployed yeah. in, in the most tragic of circumstances, unemployed. Well, um, and I will say that in that gap, I, um, I was a gig economy worker before sure. there was a gig economy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a, you're resilient and resourceful. Yeah. I no doubt that you didn't just sit there and watch friends. I was working in a virtual call center actually for Amazing. AARP from home on VPN and uh, with with the barking dog and the, and the lawnmower going by before yeah. there was remote work. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, but the fact that you joined PNC with the, like as a part-time bank teller, not knowing anything about the banking industry, um, knowing that you wanted to, now that you had all this knowledge or you're starting to gain all this knowledge around uh, empowerment and DEI practices and, and these data points. Um, and that explains why in the introduction, I mentioned that you very swiftly moved to a big uh, role in that work. You were seeking out those opportunities and they were looking, because it was a newer a newer program, there was probably an opportunity for people to join. It wasn't like a well-established you know, everyone's been there for 10 years and no one's leaving. Like it was, it was just being built as you were there. So there, the, and what a great timing that you were thinking to do that. Well, and plus a lot of the, my career progression really centered around the four empowerment steps. So, you know, know yourself and know others, but really the career movement was when I uncovered steps three and four. And so step three is to develop your strategy so the developing of your empowerment strategy is a lot of things, <laughs> right? But it's which differences to empower in what setting, because as oftentimes when you are talking about one of your differences that you hold on to, you could potentially get pigeonholed around that one difference. And that was, in essence, what was happening to me is I was often seen as the token transgender person in the company. And while that was getting me some visibility, but it was also harm for my career development because people weren't necessarily seeing that I had a broader scope to my element around empowerment. So I had to embrace and connect with all of my 10 differences, because that's the beauty of my leadership model is the fact that it connects to all 10 differences. We all have ability, age, uh, education, class, uh, language, gender, um, race, uh, religion, sexuality. And, um, and so as you go through 
all of these things that make different, you have to realize that each one can potentially lead to an empowerment opportunity for you and for other people. And so then that's when I uncovered the fourth step, which is the empowering action. And so I call them empowering action, as you remember, because it combines that app of empowerment with the corresponding action that you're doing to end connecting it to people. And people have to be part of this or it's not really empowerment. Um, so then that's kind of that I built the end of that framework. And then that's what I use to catapult myself. But I also copywritten all of my research search and all of my efforts around my empowerment program. So that way a major corporation couldn't try to steal it from me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's actually also so. curiosity is like when you work for a company and you develop a program, uh, the IP question can be confusing. Um, particularly if you eventually hope to leave any business entity and then become your own business entity, uh, continue using that material. But um, I'm curious, like, did you seek out any kind of support when you were trying to figure that out? Or how did you know that this thing you were developing sort of on the side was was something that you were able to maintain IP control over? Yeah, uh, so I, I had, um, as I was using my leveraging your leveraging your differences to impact change, I was using that as kind of a construct. Um, I wasn't combining it with any of my actual content. I was just using storytelling mm. in essence as a way to drive it away. So the moment you put it on a slide and you put a logo PNC logo on it, then it could be their intellectual property. So I would always show up and talk about my story and how I used empowerment. And I would share that with the groups and I would help that to launch a DNI council or an employee resource group. And I would tell them how they could track metrics to drive impacts, but I would never put it on a slide or build my model or share my construct of empowering differences or my website or anything like that. And then at the same time, I'm literally uploading my content right to the United States Copyright Office and I'm getting my intellectual property protected and I'm publishing my work. Um, but really those four empowerment steps used together was how I grew my career from part-time teller to become the national vice president of diversity, equity, inclusion in four and a half years. Which for considering what you did from 2017 to 2020 is no longer as shocking for me. So <laughs> <laughs> you're just an accomplished human being who's had to overcome a lot, but would have been, you would have been an amazing person to talk to you, even if you had no, no, uh, obstacle of, of, of concern, you know, I just think like you, you probably needed to have something to focus your energy. Uh, and that's why you've created such great things so quickly. So, uh, I'm, I'm curious at what point did you think I'm going to leave the security of PNC and having, you know, a salary and, you know, I, I finally get to do the work I love to do, but clearly you were sort of building an exit strategy at the same time. Cause you were, you were doing all this very thoughtful, uh, documentation on building the business sort of kind of in a low burner kind of way. But when did it become like the front and center? I know the time is right. Yeah. Um, so that was 2021. I, I knew at some point that that was probably going to be my last year. Um, um, obviously publishing all my content together and launching a book and the workbook and an online learning e-course <laughs> um, that I built an asynchronous learning platform right on my website. 
was uh, kind of a, you know, that was the moment where they were like, oh, well, <laughs> maybe we should uh, look at this a little deeper. Um, but I was very transparent, pun intended, uh, that uh, I submitted my business through co- their corporate ethics, secondary business um, activity, outside business, outside secondary employment. So they knew I had a company. I was transparent in that nature. And then I also sent them my content um, so they could make sure that I didn't rip anything from PNC, Um, you know, because I'm a high integrity person. So I didn't want there to be any animosity Um, and they approved, they approved both things. So, um, so I, I can continue to grow that while I still work there, but the domino came in multiple ways. I probably would have stayed employed if I didn't have a relationship change in status, which gave me the, um, the ability to know that I could go about, uh, on my own and I can, I wasn't making that decision with another person in a relationship together. I can make it on my own now. Um, so that had a lot to do with it. Um, and then they also made a decision on replacing the chief diversity officer, um, who ultimately at some point was the person I reported to. Um, and, and she's the one that brought me into the, you know, into the team and into the program. And, and together we grew the program exponentially over the six years that I was involved. Um, and she retired or was about to retire. They named someone new and it wasn't me. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? I, I know where my career development lives. It lives in my own hand in this moment. And I need to focus on growing that because if I could literally match my revenue of what I was getting paid at PNC versus what I was making gross in my company in 2021, while only working 10 hours a week in my company, Mm -hmm. 2022, the sky's the freaking limit. Right. And so you actually already had some clients by the yeah. time you left. You, you mean, this is, I want to kind of underscore that because I think a lot of people get really fed up with their day jobs and decide to start a business, but they haven't done all this. I mean, this is why I say you built an exit strategy is that you had built up expertise, content, and you actually had paying clients. So you had and, tested some things. Yeah. And I also had over 55,000 collective social media follower followers. You'd built up a social media following. Okay. So yeah. you had, you had a lot of different assets that you we, had uh, sort of a, a, a crew over time with a lot of effort before you tried to make this, your like full-time, this is going to support me. Um, so, I mean, that's all important stuff. I got advice from um, a mentor coach, friend of mine, Dory Clark that I would know when it was time to leave my job when it got in the way of my business. And, um, and, I, and that was really helpful. Uh, I, of course, got to that point and she still, like, I couldn't, I still felt like, ah, I love security, you know, so it's this moment of like, and then all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> I was like very quickly, well, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move. That plus also um, nothing against the financial services industry, but it's really hard to build a brand on empowerment <laughs> when your brand is directly linked to a financial services organization. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, they are trying to be better, right. but in the grand scheme of things, right. There is only so much that they can do when your business construct involves holding on to someone's power and then earning power off of their power while not giving them the power and then charging them more power when they want to move their power <laughs> yeah. or charging them more power when they want to use the power with a merchant who then charges them 3% extra. Uh, yeah. Don't even get me started <laughs> on ATM fees. Um, okay. so, 
All right. Uh, do you have a very clearly defined like who you who do you seek to support? Like who who's the ideal person you'd want to have um, come to you to like work with you? And then what is it they're hoping to even get from working with you? Like what's the outcome they're hoping for? Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, anyone that is passionate about learning about empowerment. I mean, so that actually literally should be everyone on this planet. <laughs> I mean, because I think about Jeff Bezos even wants more empowerment because you know he wants to launch that rocket right back into space. Um, so in that scheme, yeah, it's everybody. But specifically for me, targeting is probably more employee resource group, DNI resources. Um, those are kind of the places that I move in most of the time. But general leadership topics, I speak at a lot of conferences. I spoke at a hazmat conference. I mean, literally, <laughs> empowerment and leadership can go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I got out of the LGBTQ plus educational bucket, um, because I think that there's a lot of national LGBTQ plus organizations and local and regional ones as well that are really moving the needle on educating around those topics. And I don't want to take away their empowerment. When I can actually move in the business community and present my empowerment message, that's going to make an impact, a larger impact to people who aren't there to learn about that topic. What I, what I appreciate also, and, and this is true for my business, is like my activism is being an out trans business owner. Um, you know, be, being out on stage, being out as an author, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just like a, it's just like built into who I am and people will come like to, it's like not the first thing I say with a handshake, but they'll come to learn it over time and then they'll like hear it, you know, and then they'll have to absorb it. Um, and I think that it's, it's the visibility in a different kind of way. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I was talking about this, someone else, uh, on my last interview that I just did, she is very visibly queer and always has been. And I used to have that issue where it was like, wasn't really an issue. It was like an ease. I would walk in a room. It was like, people just knew I'd have to work on the coming out part. And now I just much more gender normative in my presentation in this way. And now I actually find like, oh, wow, this is what femme queer women go through. I have to like, think about how to bring this up and, or clarify, or it just leads to funny things. Cause I'm married to a woman. And so that leads to all kinds of assumptions, right? So um, I'm like, there's a lot of answers to the questions in your head. I happen to have the answer that you're looking for, but there's more than one answer that you can be coming up with right now. You're just not very like, you know, think more broadly. Um, so I have a little fun with it. But it, it, I think that the fact you were able to move, um, I, it actually makes me think of my friend, um, I have a thing right here. Oh, Bernadette Smith, her book, yeah. uh, Inclusive 360, just came out. I and love her. Similarly, she shifted from a very specific LGBT focus. I mean, weddings was her focus to a broader, you know, it, what does inclusion and belonging look like uh, in a corporate space? So, yeah, I, I, if you hadn't met, I was going to be like, we've got to introduce you uh, yeah. to her in that book. Uh, we'll put a link we, in the show notes for that as we well. Did a yeah, we did a DEI double feature actually a couple like about a month and a half ago. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I think that's actually how um we came to know each other is that my assistant saw you on that. And uh, I think oh. is how it came. Yeah. So shout out about that. Yeah. So um so thank you, Paya, who's listening in. Um so as we kind of move to to the latter part of this interview, I'm curious just because you've built up, I mean, such an interesting network over time. How do you think about nurturing that network when you think about sort of the inner circle 
any of the people that you, you don't have to really work that hard. You know, you're going to stay in touch, but then what about that second and third layers or tiers out the people that you see maybe once a year at a conference or you work with them in some capacity five years ago, but you don't have a reason to now. And you like each other. Like I should say, you like each other. So ha- like any habits, practices, or philosophies around helping um, sustain those kinds of connections? Um, well, obviously, like I want to connect. Um, I mean, I'm a big email box person. So I have a folder of follow-ups um, and, I, and I mark them for the dates in the future that I want to follow up and just check in and see how people are doing. Um, so I, I manage that way, um, from my email box, uh, to try to be organized. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, and then the more ways that you connect with someone I think is also good. So like sometimes I'll text people and, um, and then I send a newsletter out. So my company has a newsletter. We, we, we do bi-weekly newsletters. So basically every other week you get an email from me <laughs> that's going to say, Hey, this is what's going on with empowering differences. Um, you know, here's Ashley, who's got, you know, June 22nd is going to be potentially accepting a word from Governor Ron DeSantis as Florida's commission on the status of women. <laughs> so I can't wait for that moment. I hope he actually shows up to that event. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm being named one of their community spirit award winners. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to have quite a great speech for that uh, event. <laughs> Yep. But yeah, I mean, stuff like that. So it's always good to have that connection and have that reoccurring communication. I want to dig a little into uh, the technical pieces around your inbox management because no one's ever suggested this. And I think it can be very clever. Um, Are you using Gmail or some other? Uh, I'm a Google. I'm a Google person. Yeah. Okay. So you're using Gmail. Does that Uh, mean you're tagging them to be a follow up for a certain date? Like Like, how are you thinking? Are you bucketing them by a month? Like, how are you thinking about that? Well, I have a folder that they all go in and then they're listed chronologically. And then I just go through the folder um, like once a month um, and then I tag it and I put a date uh, or I start a draft or I actually tag it with a date to reply. Got it. So um, sometimes I'll also put something on my calendar too as well as if I need an additional reminder. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the idea of just using systems because if we just leave it up to chance, like life gets busy and and those things don't happen. And sometimes the follow-up isn't something you have to do like immediately, but you want to check in a few months later, even, or just like check. Yeah. And that's how I have like a million strategies though for LinkedIn. (laughs) Oh yeah. There are a couple. Yeah. And utilizing LinkedIn. And so you can get a hundred invitations every week. So if you do not max out on uh hundred invitations to people that you want to connect with every week, you're wasting empowerment. So please don't ever waste empowerment. You also get 1000 invitations to an event every single week. So if you do not have an event that you can invite someone to every week, then you're missing an opportunity as well. So if it's three, four five, eight months out in advance, like my voyage of empowerment, Hopefully you'll get an invitation, Robbie, to my voyage of empowerment, which is my empowerment conference, November 12th through the 17th. I'm sending out, I've been sending out every week. I send out invitations um, and it's all, you know, targeted based on industry or location. If I do a book tour signing um, and I literally search by that city and then I can target a strategy right through LinkedIn and I'm not spending any money on that. 
um, mm-hmm. those invitations. And then you can also message all the people that you've invited to something and say, oh, by the way, did you see my invite? And then they're like, no, I didn't. And then and you've now literally opened up the gate to have a conversation. <laughs> so you're actually so, able to yeah, invite people uh, to a LinkedIn event that you're not already connected with on LinkedIn. Uh, no, you have to be connected to them. You have to be connected to them. But then yes. once you're, so you're connected, these are people you're, so you're connected to them. First up is that you connect with the right people. The next is that you invite them to an event you're doing and you can invite up to a thousand people a month. So if the no, event's three months away, oh, a thousand a week. Yeah. Okay, so, so if the event is five weeks away, you theoretically could invite 5,000 people. If you had only one event, yes. All right, if now you, I have four events of four. four right, but you also events. have to already be connected to 5,000 people to start with. So, okay, so there's a little bit of a limitation for some of us. Okay. But yeah. you also have people in your sphere who could send out invitations. So like, for example, um, the event I'm doing on Wednesday uh, next week is um, related to um teasing my empowerment conference and so i'm bringing on one of the speakers we're going to promote her book um we're going to promote her company and um and then we're going to promote the crew the conference that's happening on a cruise ship (laughs) and um and so together um i'm inviting my thousand a week and she's inviting her thousand a week and then i have two staff members who's also inviting their thousand people a week as well wow that's really cool I have not, I, I know a lot of LinkedIn uh, experts who speak on things. So I've not heard this particular strategy. So thank you for giving us some food for thought. All right. Last question. Oh gosh. You and I are clearly going to stay in touch for numerous, numerous reasons. So uh, let's say it is that uh, a year from now. And I remember that we, we've talked a year ago and I'm curious, what are we going to be celebrating? What are, what are the wins you're going to have between now and then that are going to be worth celebrating? What are you looking forward to? <laughs> Well, besides my uh, my speech when I accept the award from Ron DeSantis's Florida Commission on the Status of Women, um, <laughs> I'm gonna have had a really amazing, life changing empowerment conference for attendees um, in November of 2022. I'm gonna also have had a life changing empowerment of uh, 2022. I'm going to be launching the Voyage of Empowerment for 2023, which is going to go to Bermuda. Um, so, yeah, when we talk next year, I will have had a lot of really exciting events that in combined empowerment with leadership mm-hmm. to help people create the change that they need across all of our 10 most common differences, truly empowering differences. Well, I cannot wait to celebrate all that with you. That sounds amazing. How can people follow you and uh, learn about your work? Uh, yeah, you can connect with me on social at Ashley T. Brundage, all one word. You can also connect with me on my company at Empowering Diff, D-I-F-F. Um, and that's because empowering differences is too long. It's too important <laughs> to, to have it as a, too many characters. Um, and there's a lot of characters involved in this. So <laughs> um, but yeah, and and poweringdifferences.com is my website. So you can do there, you can visit there and, and connect uh, with all of my digital content as well. Brilliant. We're going to put all those links in the show notes, which you'll find at ontheschmooze.com. Ashley, thank you so much for joining the conversation. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ashley. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. 
look for episode 288. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. Have you been banging your head against a brick wall trying to sell a product or service? Reading my best-selling book, Small List, Big Results, Launch a Successful Offer No Matter the Size of Your Email List, will give you great ideas, but reading is not the same as taking action. And you need to take action to start seeing results. Here's what I can promise you. You will come to the workshop with a list of likely prospects and leave with the knowledge of how to run research calls, how to line them up, what to say, and when to follow up. You will come with questions around how to contact these prospects and leave with specific and strategic outreach, including personalized templates and scripts to achieve this part of the launch process. This is not a webinar or training. It's live coaching and personalized feedback. You will come with a desire for action and leave with concrete next steps. When is it? Saturday, July 16th from 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific, which is 11.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. How much? $500, which I will match if you continue working with me. You ready to take that next step? Register at robbysamuels.com forward slash idea to offer. That's robbysamuels.com idea, the number two offer. If you sign up by Tuesday, July 5th, you'll have enough time to do the required pre-work, which is building your list of likely prospects. Space is limited. The session will be capped at just 12 people. If you enjoy this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe or follow for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.